Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Sherry, this is episode 201, and last week we published episode 200, which was our daughter Catherine sharing her story of growing up in an alcoholic household. And I really debated a lot this week about, like I have a whole, I had a whole different topic planned and maybe we should just move on. My, my goal was to let Catherine's story be her story and not, I didn't really want to record us commentating on her story because, you know, I didn't want to wash over her words. And I definitely didn't want to sound like we were defending ourselves against some of the things that we heard. But I just can't get her story off my mind. And now we've started to receive feedback from other people who are saying, okay, that's great. Her strength is incredible. And we're so glad that she was able to be so honest. But... What's your reaction? Because you and I, to only a very limited degree, did we react while we listened to Catherine's story. And so I think we need to talk about it. You okay, okay with that? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want... I mean, on the one hand, I do want to leave our the interpretation of our feelings open for our listeners to... You know, who many of them who have been through a similar situation for them to consider what their feelings would be and let that be their own internal process. I would never want to tell anyone how to feel, but I do think we need to tell people how we feel um, and make no excuses or no defenses about the things or try to contradict anything that Catherine said. That's not what this is about. But I just learned too much on that our recording with Catherine to just drop it. She said a lot of things that were first time information for me. Was some of that new for you too? Um, you don't have to get into specifics yet. Yeah, there was some new pieces and then there were just some pieces that I was, um, a little bit like confused about, which we can get into later. Okay. Let's do a listener question first. My husband drinks too much, and he has rules to limit himself. He communicates his rules with me so that when he's going to break a rule, I will stop him. It's been going okay. The problem is just that I feel like I'm his mother. It's changing the dynamic of the relationship, and I don't know how to fix it. Mm. Want to jump in on that one? Well... I mean, if right now, if you have to, like, enforce the rule and be the police, but he's obeying, like, that's a totally different scenario than what you and I had. Like, if I were to ever remind you of any of your rules that you voiced to me, there would be backlash. You know, you'd be like, well, you're not inside my brain, I changed it, or, you know, you would just manipulate it to get your win, or, well, right. this is just a one-off, or, you know, so I don't think I really, after, you know, several times like that, I never tried to want to know your rules and I didn't try to enforce them because I knew you were going to eventually break them. Yeah. Whether you were holding to them or not. But yeah, I think that change in the dynamic of being the mother or being the police, eventually there's going to be resentment on his part, which he's asked you to enforce, but he's still going to be resentful. That's what I would imagine. It is funny. I think this is a trait that I have that's separate from alcoholism I do I will share with you an idea a thought a decision every whatever. new thought idea <laughs> but well but then <laughs> but then I'll keep thinking about it, keep thinking about it I'll change it in change my head it. and in my head I will have thought it through so much that I will think that I have somehow telepathically told you of the change of decision that I've made and then I'll be frustrated with you when I've changed my rule and you don't know what the new rule is or just yeah, ideas and, about anything. Yeah. It's it's really what you, very common. What do you 
You mean Sherry? I, I changed that like three weeks ago. Oh well, that oh, was that you? was that was like twenty four hours ago, and it's evolved to something new. Yeah. So that's... I am particularly difficult to uh, keep up with his rules or thinking, I suppose. But yeah, I thought of Esther Perel, and I'm not going to say um, exactly who Esther Perel is. I think she's well known enough, and I get negative feedback sometimes when I. I think just for me and two other people in our... (laughs) A little inside joke on the podcast today. But Esther Perel says you can't feel romantic for someone that you're taking care of, that you're the caretaker for. And that's what popped into my head when I heard this, to speak to the part about how she says, you know, I feel like I'm his mother and the relationship dynamic is changing. Yeah, well, no kidding. When you're in charge of discipline and... And rule following, that is a mothering mm-hmm. uh, situation. And that is not uh, something that I think, I don't think it's sustainable long term because of that dynamic changing. But I just don't think it's sustainable long term, period. I mean, my initial reaction to this question is that'll never work because the rules just don't work. We, I mean, hundreds of people we have met who put rules around their drinking. And 0% of those people that has been successful for. the Alcoholism is a progressive disease. It goes from not so bad to a little worse to worse than that to really bad. And so wherever you are in that, you know, downward spiral where you're trying to enforce these rules, it's just going to get worse from where you are. Mm -hmm. So communicating that to your husband, especially if it seems to be going okay, as she says right now. Uh, that's a huge challenge. You might just have to let him find out for on his own. But definitely, if you're the rule enforcer, if you're the spouse, don't be surprised when this doesn't work. Well, I'm just be shocked if it did. Progression of the disease. Yeah. Like those rules are going to be harder and harder to maintain, and they're going to change and evolve. And then there's going to be the one-offs. I mean, it's just not going to work for long. And it's like you said, it's not sustainable. For the relationship or for the drinker to try to have these rules. Yep, absolutely. If you'd like to ask a listener question, please email that to matt at soberandunashamed.com and we will do our best to work it on to an upcoming episode. We've uh, gotten lots of listener questions lately. We really appreciate them. Keep them coming. Okay, so... Takeaways from episode 200, which again was our daughter Catherine sharing her experiences growing up in an alcoholic household. Um, uh, I, uh, what does that even say? <laughs> oh, Matt's I. having difficulty reading his notes. Yes. Again, folks, no edits. <laughs> um, I had already bought in before we started recording with Catherine. To the fact that my drinking had an impact on our kids. We meet a lot of people who are in the position that you and I were formerly in. Where you knew that my drinking and your reaction to my drinking. Our general attitude, our whisper fight arguments. All of that had had an impact on the kids. But I believed for a long time, for years and years, that we had done a good enough job keeping it from them that we had not impacted them. And, you know, years prior to this recording last week with Catherine, I had come to the realization that I was just flat out wrong and that my drinking and your reaction had traumatic impact on the kids. And also, you know, you know, an eggshells kind of anxiety thing where the kids would read the fact that I was in a bad mood and stay away from me. Or you would say, you know, dad's been drinking or dad's in a bad mood. Let's leave him alone. And so that anxiety that that created, I, I bought all, all of that. I knew that there had been problems, but what I didn't understand, um, it, this this is going to sound funny. I, I understood what it did to the family overall. I understood what it did to the kind of dynamic in the household. But I didn't understand what it did specifically to her. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, because, I mean, every person is going to react differently. Her feelings are going to be different than sure. what her oldest brother, who she's two years, who's two years younger than her, because he had more experience, um, you know, just because he was older and had more memories. But his reaction might have been different. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I don't know why. I, I It didn't occur to me that... That it would change her and who she is as a human. I just thought, oh, she had this terrible thing she had to get through. I'm glad that she, you know, is talking to a therapist and working through it. But then, kind of, still that naive kind of wiping the dust off your hands reaction there. Um, So. One of the things that I didn't understand, we talked on the episode last week. We brought up a a story that Catherine had shared with us about lying about playing tennis. Um, and and the way the story went, she she told us that she was you know she's in college and she had met a new group of people and they played tennis and they asked her if she played tennis and she said yes, and she doesn't play tennis. And she said, you know, at the time, she didn't understand where that came from. Um, and, you know, why why did she lie so freely? And then on the episode last week, she talked about how, what her relationship was like with lying. And it really, it really took me by surprise. You know, she, she said that she had learned to become a really good liar through this process of growing up in an alcoholic household and that she actually got to the point where she was enjoying lying. And my, so my takeaway, my reaction to that, my oh my God moment is I forced her to be fake. You know, we, I was all over all of our kids asking them to tell us you know, um, where they were, what they were doing, um, you know, high expectations. And, um, and so I forced this like lying out of them, right? Because you can't be perfect all the time. And they knew I was expecting that. And so the, fear that they had of what my reaction might be to something forced Catherine to learn how to just tell me what I wanted to hear. Did that surprise you? Did you see that coming? Uh, No. Um, It didn't surprise me. Because I was like that. Sorry. Um, Yeah, I had to do that. I had to do the exact same thing. Um, it was never verbalized in the house that they needed to maintain perfect grades. Or, but there would be comments like, you need to tell the truth. If you tell the truth, it's going to be a lot easier. And, but they could, they have, they had learned that maybe telling the truth wasn't easier because there was going to be the consequence of dealing with your reaction to it. Because, you weren't happy. And I remember, like, when you and I were struggling, and, and I, so we've been married almost 26 years. 20 of those years was drinking. 10 to 12 years was really bad drinking. I mean, maybe you hadn't fallen into the alcoholic category for all of that in the beginning, but, like, fights. And I used to say, if I don't agree with you, I become your enemy. And that's how my mom was. Growing up, it took her a hard time to understand that I can have a different opinion. I can have different feelings about something, but still be your, you know, your loved one. And that's how it was with you and me and the dynamic of the relationship. And then that got passed down to them. Like, one of the reasons in our in our groups, and I say there's no talk about politics, is because that became a nightmare conversation. You would talk about your political views and how anybody else was wrong and argue about it and try to like impress upon your political views to them so that they would understand the way the world should work better 
and it would be very animated when you were drinking. So, of course, they were going to agree with you. And then if there was a time that they questioned... Agree with me agree on with the surface. On the surface. But then if there was times as they got older, you know, and even maybe even early in sobriety, like that first year of your sobriety, and you would they would try to bring something up that they felt a little bit better about sharing because they just were older and in high school, then you made them still kind of feel bad about expressing their opinion that was their own or, you know, and and now you've realized, like, you know, there's this ideology that happens when you're a young adult in college age and we always joke life hasn't beaten you down enough, but you made it seem really impossible to be truthful because the truth hurts. And if you have a bad reaction, then it hurts both the parties. You were hurt or upset or annoyed because you were full of insecurities that you were right. But then the reaction would be hurtful to the person who tried to be truthful and honorable to themselves. Yeah. Yeah, ugh. When, back to that tennis story, when we first heard that story, I think that was a couple of years ago when she was new in college and first meeting people, I was like, where on earth does that come from? And we read in the Adult Children of Alcoholics book that lying is very typical for adult children of alcoholics. And I said, okay, well, this book says it's true. And this book's written by a psychologist. So it must be true. I didn't I didn't deny the validity of the fact. I just didn't understand it. You didn't understand that it infiltrated so many pieces of your life that you just wanted to be somebody else? You thought lying meant, like... Oh, I had to lie, you know, because my dad, I had to say he was on medication instead of being drunk. Or things like that. You mean, like, you just thought your lying was to cover up your life, but you didn't know you wanted to be somebody else? Yeah, I... I didn't know. I didn't know that she wanted to be somebody else. I didn't know that I had created a situation where lying was easier for her than telling the truth. I mean, I've had, like, the better part of a week to process this, and now I can't believe I didn't know it. (laughs) Just like we were talking about how I would change my mind and change the rules and be shocked that you didn't know that I internally, inside my own head, changed the rules. I've been thinking about this nonstop for almost a week, so now I can't believe that I didn't know that this would be a repercussion. I can't believe that, I mean, it's so obvious to me now, if you're putting someone in an uncomfortable position where navigating it is like threading a needle, you know, coming coming out uh, unscathed when there's all this anxiety and tension in the house requires saying all the right things and doing all the right things and being in all the right places and getting all the right grades and participating in a certain way in activities. I can't believe that I didn't know that that was forcing our daughter to lie and to, 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 and not lie in a malicious way, obviously. I think that's obvious. To, to tell to tell us what to tell me what I wanted to hear so I'd stay off of her back. Yeah. I remember, you know, we talked grades. Catherine was an absolutely excellent student. I'm pretty sure she only got one grade in all of her high school career that was not an A. She was And you reamed her for it. Well, I want to be specific though. She was she had applied to a couple of the military academies and right like right when her grades were going to be considered 
she had gotten a B in student senate. And, you know, this is basically a like a civics class. It, it has everything to do with how government operates. And I just thought, oh my God, of all well, the they classes. Were, and it was a little more like they were planning the school events. That was also their part of their job. And they had right. to be but, philanthropic. And but the, but the Air Force Academy decision makers weren't going to have that background. They were going to see on a piece of paper, student senate B. And I thought... That's the last class you want to get a B on if you're trying to get into a military academy. And maybe my thinking was wrong, but but that's what I thought. And I said, and I... Do you want to hear the rest of the story? Do you remember it? Do I? Can I interject something please. I think is ironic? Please. So when you asked her about that grade, she said, well, the teacher that ran, runs it mm-hmm. is a former English teacher right. and writing composition teacher. Now, she is a fantastic writer, and she said, so I only half-assed the essays because I was in a hurry, and I was looking like that final needed to be my very last one, so I wasn't giving it the attention with the writing piece. So she got a B on the writing piece of it, and I think that's what also made you a little more aggravated because she had written these wonderful essays. She was, she is such a great writer that you were just shocked, and she was like, I just didn't expect him to grade that hard. Yeah. And and that was another piece of the puzzle. Was you were like so dumbfounded why yeah. she didn't take it seriously, but she didn't know the history behind you know the the quality of writing he would expect. Because she was looking around at her yeah. other classmates thinking, I'm going to write better than them. I don't think that's how she told the story to me. I don't think she shared that part with me. that might I'm sure that was the truth and I'm sure that she was more comfortable sharing the truth with me. I think she because there was a, a very big participation part of that grade too, of going, you know, as a student senator going to events, and they had to take pictures of themselves at events to prove to the teacher that they had gone to school events. Yeah, and I think was... she told me that she hadn't gone to enough of the events, or or the, or forgot to take a picture, and he wouldn't believe her or something. I can't remember yeah. exactly what it was, but but my. My takeaway, you know, my reaction was... Maybe that's why she lied about the pictures to you and yeah. you told me that story. Yeah. I mean, that's told entirely possible. But just looking back, you know, and she she got into the Air Force Academy. It, um, it didn't hold her back. But yeah, I was hard on her. I was hard on her. For sure. So I, I created this situation where... Uh, learning to be a good liar, and then, like she said on the podcast, learning eventually to like lying. Um, I created that, and I'm absolutely crushed by that. You know, honesty is a really important core principle to me. It is to most people that I've met, right? And we alcoholics, when we are, are denying the truth and when we're gaslighting I'm here to tell you for many of us for myself certainly I don't think I'm lying I believe that truth that I'm shoveling your way the I you know when I'm telling you you're not seeing what you're really seeing I'm trying to convince you of that because I've already worked really hard to convince myself of that so it's not you know a lie in the sense that I sat down and I said, here's what the truth is. I'm going to write down what the opposite of that is. And then that's what I'm going to share with people. It's not concrete like that. It's just refusing to to see what's really happening in front of you. And I did that. And I did that. And, and so I've, over the last several years, come to grips with the fact that I did that to you. And that I was wrong and that your truth was right. It... For some inexplicable reason, had never occurred to me that I had done the same thing to my kids until Catherine shared that with us. I'm, and then the lying that happens is a survival type of lying. Oh, to, sure. To agree with the gaslighting, agree with all the rules and the demands and the opinions. So then. Your 
In this household, you wanted honesty and truth all the time. You weren't providing it from yourself, and you were forcing us and her to not be truthful. I know there were several times where you caught me lying about things because I also had to lie so I didn't get your wrath so I could give you the answer you wanted. So I'm sure that was just a learned skill, a survival skill. Maybe it was... Survival skill. Maybe it, it was something that she saw because she would know. Like I would say, oh, well, we had a gift card to this place. Like if I had gotten cash and we went out to lunch and you would be like, no, you don't need to go out to lunch or something. Or, you know, you think it's ridiculous. Or I bought stuff at the zoo. Be like, oh, we had a gift card or bonus cards. You know, bonus points to use for those sort of things. Because I didn't want to be spending the money frivolously in your eyes. Yeah, we had to save that money for the alcohol. You know, on this lying topic, the most heartbreaking part of this for me is, and I think you mentioned it on the podcast just last week, but there were times when I would think, oh, you know, we've been arguing in the evening, in the night, in the middle of the night, and we've gotten too loud, and I would think, I, I got to go around and see if the kids, if we've woken the kids up or not, because I think we've been too loud. And I would go in their rooms and check to see if they were sleeping. And they were. And now I know... They were. They probably weren't. They were probably just pretending to be asleep. And then early in my sobriety, I wrote a lot about how when we would be around other people, like when we would be on a family vacation with my side of the family, I would drink too much. And then the next morning I would come downstairs for breakfast and I would like tiptoe into the room and just hold my breath and be ready for people to tell me, oh my God, Matt, you had too much to drink last night. We need to sit down and talk about this. I think you have a drinking problem. And no one ever did, right? It was always, you know, just brushed under the rug. And again, my ignorance is astounding to me. I don't know how... I could so, in such a concrete way, in such a vivid way, remember scenes where my parents and my sister and my family had brushed it under the rug and not addressed what I look back now and see was the elephant in the room. And I never imagined that same thing for my kids until last week when we heard Catherine talk. So the morning after a time when I was pretty sure we had woken them up, I would see how they're doing. Greet them with a big smile on my face. How you doing, Catherine? How'd you sleep? How's, how's your morning going so far? What do you want for breakfast? You know, that kind of a thing. And my purpose in doing that was to see what kind of reaction I would get, right? And if she responded to my fake positivity with her own fake positivity or with her own positivity, pardon me, then I would assume, oh, she got a good night's sleep. She didn't hear anything. We're okay there. And I would breathe a sigh of relief. And now I realize she was just responding to my fake positivity with her own learned fake positivity. And while I am sad that, and I've worked through this. I'm not mad at anybody. So please, I don't want to, I don't want this to be misunderstood. I've worked through the fact that uh, there was never any confrontation until, you know, on the rare occasion, Sherry, where you forced the confrontation, which was like literally a couple you of mean times. from your family? Yeah. Or my family? Yeah. Like literally less than a handful of times. So, uh, all the other times when I drank, there was no, con over drank, there was no confrontation when there was obviously a problem. And that was frustrating to me. When I think of it as it relates to my kids, that's not frustrating at all. They're children. 
It's our job to protect them. So I don't think of that like, hey, when I said to you, Catherine, you know, when you were nine, hey, how'd you sleep? How you doing? What do you want for breakfast? And you returned that with a fake smile and positivity. I'm not upset at all with her about that. She has no place to confront me or tell me I'm doing wrong. She's the child. I'm the father. So that is just pure heartbreak. That like there's no other emotion in that other than, oh my God, what did I do? So on that note, can you imagine those mornings that you woke up at your family's house or my family's house after over drinking? Or maybe even you were worried like if we were in a group with friends and it was obvious you had over drank and made a fool of yourself or caused problems. And you had to go down and face those people the next morning. Can you imagine that every day? Walking in, not knowing what to expect, that anxiety that lives inside you. Because you were so fearful of what the response from the other people are going to be. That's how they walked through this house, in and out. I mean, you had to do it just sometimes when you were worried. They had to do it all the time. You're talking about how Catherine... Described what it was like to come home from school or come home from volleyball or soccer or whatever and and have to gauge the room because she didn't know what she was walking into. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was was heartbreaking to hear that. I, I always thought, God, what a... Like, we have somehow, in spite of myself... We have the best kid in the whole world. She comes in and goes to everyone's room or goes to find everyone. You know, there's six of us that live in this house. She goes to find the other five people and greet them individually and see how they're doing. Check in on them. What a magical person this is. And don't get me wrong. I still think she's magical. I still think she's a cut above and, and she's different in her compassion and empathy level. But she wasn't just doing that because she's wonderful and because she's generous and kind. She was doing that as self-preservation. To check in and make sure also because she was a caretaker. It's crushing for me. Too young. Too early to have to be the caretaker no, in the she family. She never have to have done that. I never wanted her to be the one that was like in charge of the boys unless it was like a special event. But it ended up having to be that way. Like I had to have her watch after her little brothers and look after them. Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, so the... The ease with which she learned how to lie as a defense mechanism. The amount, as I think back through it, I mean, one of the things that I just haven't been able to stop thinking about for this last week is how many of those interactions that in my mind were really special. Um, Holidays, you know, we've mentioned athletics. I coached her in soccer for a long time, so something really exciting happened on the soccer field, and we're celebrating or just haven't seen you in a while and there's a big hug and we're, you know, for me, those moments were the precious moments of a father thinking back on his daughter and her childhood, just precious memories. And now all I can think about is, oh, she was, she was giving me a big hug because she knew that's what was expected, but really... She wasn't happy in that moment. She was delivering the emotion that was expected out of her. And so so what what we what I created, what my addiction created was a lack of authenticity that that's what's you know, almost not impossible, but really, really difficult. That's the work of recovery for Catherine. That's what she's got to come back from. She said on the podcast that she doesn't know if she'll ever trust, be able to trust anyone. I did that. I did that. Well, took a, took a new human with 
a world of potential in front of her and made it so she's not sure she'll ever be able to trust another human. Well, and I'm sure that I played a role because of the alcohol. There, you know. Like, whenever I would, maybe when they were little, and I would say things, you know, they're like, I just lied about or tried to lie about what was going on or that I was okay. And then I would, like, snap at them and be short if it was a particularly bad day. So I created insecurity there. Yeah, when I hear you try to own some of this, I immediately go to the thing that we preach to pe- to other people. Blame the alcohol. Don't blame the human. Blame the alcohol. Don't blame the human. And I, it's really easy for me when I hear you taking accountability for what we did to them. It's really easy for me to say, Sherry, you were doing everything you could to survive. <coughs> you were a victim to... The alcohol is to blame. You don't need to take any of that on you. But at least right now, I can't do any alcohol blaming when it comes to my side of it. I'm just, I'm devastated that I did this. And I don't know. She's my, she's my daughter, you know? Like, you get married and have kids and... That is your ultimate responsibility. We don't think that. We think I gotta work, I got this career, I gotta you know, meet certain standards, I gotta be impressive. But but you know, without getting too philosophical about all that, my one real responsibility was to take these four humans that we had made the decision to bring into the world and help them be happy and healthy and prepared. And almost everything I did pushed in the wrong direction. So they are um, amazing humans in spite of me. And I just can't even, you know, if we go back, if we were to go back in time, 20 years, I, I would think you were absolutely insane if you said that. That that was what was going to happen. But that's what happened. So I think... I think that, you know, we talked, we asked Catherine to react to a really, really bad you know, an an acute, a one-time situation with some specific details that happened. And, um, you know, I knew, like, I was prepared when it came time to do the podcast with Catherine. I was prepared for whatever she said about that terrible moment. I was going to be ready for that because it was awful. And, but I did not understand that I had created in her a lack of trust in other humans and I had created in her a propensity for lying and even a little bit of joy in lying and I know I don't I know I'm not getting emotional the way you are but it's not because I'm cold and callous it's because this microphone's sitting between us and I'm trying to express my feelings in a way that's consumable by other people, but I am devastated. Um, There were some other surprises uh, besides the fact that I forced my daughter to become a liar. Um... One of them, going back to what I just said, that we presented a scenario for her about we were going on vacation and I had, it was early in the morning and I had drank all the previous night and argued with you all the previous night and 
it was honestly, I mean, if we're being honest, it was one of the rare times when we didn't at least try to keep the actual argument away from the kids. There weren't a lot of, you know, we weren't a family that just sat there and you and I screamed at each other in front of the kids. You mean in the car all the way to the airport? I'm saying in general. Well, yeah. As they were growing up, we, they didn't, I mean, we talk about the eggshells when she would come home, but it wasn't a situation where she would come home to screaming and yelling right. and throwing pots We weren't pots fighting in the kitchen. We never, with, we never, yeah. we almost never did that. But this was one of the few times where I just couldn't hold my tongue and I was screaming and yelling at you in front of the kids. In the car. In the car. Yeah. While I was driving after drinking for the past 14 hours or whatever it was. Right. And. Because I asked you to get, I said, we need to go to a marriage counselor. And that threw you over the edge. What what surprised me, we asked Catherine for her reaction and I expected her to say she was mad and hurt and you know, I was ready for whatever she was gonna throw at us. Except for this. She said she just sat back there and thought about death and thought about what if I hit a tree and we all died, or what if at least I, me, Matt, died. And that she had lots of thoughts about death. Thoughts about my death, thoughts about her death. Not just in that moment, but that that was a a recurring theme for her, and I didn't I didn't know that I didn't expect that. I mean, again, I've had almost a week to process this, so now I sit here and say, "Well, hell yeah! How could you not have thought about death if you were living in the situation she was living in?" To me, now it's totally obvious, but a week ago. I had no idea that that thought had ever entered her precious little mind. Little adolescent, teenage, now 20-something mind. So, you know, we've been saying for a long time now that living with alcoholism is capital T trauma. She was like nine and a half or maybe just ten when that incident happened. And what makes me so sad is when, like, I bring up things that were very traumatic for me and I knew that it involved the kids and this was one of those specific examples because you yanking the car and you screaming, your mother wants to get a divorce. Your mother wants to get a divorce. Do you understand? Do you understand that? Do you know what this is going to do to us? Because I had asked you to go to marriage counseling, even though... I knew you hated counseling back then. The youngest was like two. She was ten. And she did start crying. She didn't she did start crying. And the boy started crying. And the two year old didn't know what was going on and he started crying because everybody was crying. And the the that makes me sad is like parceling out some of those like big tragic events or traumatic events for me. Like, they all just kind of blurred together for her because I know that they're children and they don't have those distinct memories. But what makes me so sad is that a lot of her childhood is clouded. She's not able to compartmentalize all of those, but she can't remember a lot of the good times either. So it just fucking makes me so mad. I haven't had a chance to talk to you about this, Matt, because we've had just kind of a busy, crazy week. But that's... That's what I took away from the conversation with her was that there is no differentiating. Like, this was a good time, this was a bad time because of all the lying and the covering up and the fakeness and just it all intertwined that there isn't, like, she doesn't... You say you don't know if the good hugs were real or not. You know, if those good moments are real or not because was she just being what's expected? I'm so sad because she doesn't remember probably the good times because she had to she just, it's all blurred together I'm sorry I'm not making any sense but that's the saddest hardest thing for me is like I can look at those good times we had when you guys like didn't have fun and you were not drunk and drinking and things have been going well and like, sometimes our ski weekends would be great, and sometimes they would be bad. But for her, they were probably all just covered in 
saturated in alcohol that she can't parcel out. Well, part of that not being able to separate things is they were always, whether they were good or bad, they were always tense. Because just like you never knew what to expect, she never knew what to expect. That's the thing. I I thought, you know, okay, here's here's a handful of instances where I went too far and it directly impacted the kids. Right? But I never considered because I'm an idiot. I mean, this is so obvious to me now. I never considered that all those other times in between, she was stressed and anxious and nervous about what might happen. You know, they look so innocent. And they are so innocent. And so I think to myself, oh, there she is just having fun and smiling and she doesn't have a care in the world. It doesn't occur to me that she carries the same baggage as an adult of worry and stress and eggshell walking. And, you know, we talk about nervous system dysregulation. I mean, she's in fight or flight her whole childhood, whether it's a good day or a bad day. Just because it's a good day doesn't mean you're not nervous that it's going to turn into a bad day. Because we know how quickly those things can go in our house when alcohol is involved. Dinner could be great and fun and jovial, but then you decide they get too wound up and then you're mad. So, everything that Catherine shared, like I said, one thing I didn't want to do was record a follow-up podcast to hers and try to defend myself or try to say, oh, she's remembering this thing wrong or that thing wrong. Nothing could be further from the truth. She has totally opened my eyes to a whole new chunk of destruction that I have no earthly idea how I missed before this. So the the thoughts of death that she experienced were one of my other big surprises besides the lying. The other one was just the, the hatred for us. How she talked about how she would tell her friends that she hated us and she didn't want to go home. And she was so good at playing the role that she was cast in that I never, I never thought that. So what I'm trying to, to, to come to grips with now is... How arrogant was I that when she would smile and hug me and tell me she loved me and act like everything was fine, that I would say, oh, yeah, well, we're doing a good job. That's why everything's fine. Everything's fine because we're good parents. Everything's fine because we're attentive to our children. And it never occurred to me. That everything was fine because that's what she was expected to say. And nothing was actually fine. And she was just telling us what we wanted to hear. I mean, I know that she's told me that she's struggled with, you know, anxiety and social anxiety. I could never, never really fathom that as like her being in elementary school and middle school. Yeah. And I just... And now I'm like, that's like one thing that shocked me was like, well, of course. Yeah. She has no trust of anybody. That's right. I mean, maybe. No safe places. No safe places. I mean, maybe a few people. And maybe like school and being away from the house was her level of safety and comfort, but she didn't want to be there. She just wanted to be nurtured and taken care of and looked after and loved. <laughs> unconditionally but she knew that she didn't have that and then she knew that she had built this facade she had to keep up this persona yeah you know I the other thing I can't help but think about You know, you know, Sherry, that I, I like to watch documentaries. 
and I watch a lot of food documentaries about our broken food system, and I often hear people say, if you know, if a foreign country came here and did the kind of damage to our civilization in the United States that the processed food has done as it relates to diabetes and obesity and other metabolic diseases, you know, if, if a foreign country caused this much pain and damage, we would go to war with them for sure because they were attacking our people. And I think about that as it relates to my own kids. If anyone had preyed on my children and caused this kind of anxiety and trauma and lack of trust and all the pain, I mean, I, I'd hate to even think what my reaction would be to, that, to a person who would do that to my, my family. But I did that to my family. I did that. Do you know what it's like to sit on my side of the fence and watch that happen from someone I married and trusted and procreated with? Can you understand, like, the level of hatred I would have for you at times? I would often pray for death. It would never be my own. I would never want to kill you. I would think of those things because how can I let my children down. They would lose their father, but they would lose their mother. Like, I mean, all these sick, sick thoughts spread through a person's brain. And then all I wanted to do was protect them, but it did not protect them. Because I'm not a superhero. I'm just a mom who is in a very compromised state herself. And I just feel like I was such a failure in a lot of ways. Because all I wanted to do was I wanted to have a family that was, that stayed together, that was healthy, that was happy. And really it was just a lie. I'm not sad at all that we had four kids. I just feel so bad for them at times. Yeah, I I can't imagine what it would be like to be in your position. I mean, you describe it graphically and you describe it really, really well. So I'm as close as I'll ever come to understanding what it would be like to be in your position because of how you've shared. But, yeah... Devastating. Just absolutely crushing. I, you know, I'm pretty realistic from the standpoint that I don't spend a whole lot of time sitting around wishing for do-overs, but all I've thought about this last week is, God, if I could go back 20 years, or 10, or 5, or, you know, whatever I could be granted, but if I could go back to the beginning... And that, and that's why I'm one of the, you know, besides just pure hatred and anger for myself, the other big emotion I feel is frustration. Because why is this information not available in the way that information that glamorizes alcohol is available? Why do we as a society only tell one side of this story? I know I know the answer, right? I know it's money. I know it's tradition. I I get it, but I'm just even madder about it than I used to be. I mean, I really think if if you are at the stage in your life where you are partnering up and you're considering having a family, I think the only responsible choice is you need to decide whether you're going to be a drinker or you're going to be a parent and you should not do both and I'm not calling for making alcohol illegal I'm not calling for the government to get involved at all the government just fucks everything up that they get involved in so I'm not suggesting that in any way but I think like I don't know 
societally or morally. I wish we would view that as a decision point. You're either going to, if you and your partner want to be big drinkers and you want to, that's just how you want to live for the rest of your life, go get them, Tiger. I mean, I obviously think that's a terrible decision too. And I know lots of people who don't have kids who have had alcohol destroy their relationships and their marriages. But I think having kids is a different level of responsibility. And I'm certainly in no position right now to lecture anyone on their their decisions as I've just screwed up so many. But I just wish, I wish that when it came time to us deciding whether or not to have kids, I wish one of the factors would have been, well, we all know. it. You know, it's kind of like if you get married, you are buying into the morality of, I'm only going to have physical relations with this one person. Celibacy, not celibacy, um, monogamy. This is my one person. That's a generally accepted societal principle. If I get married, I only have sex with this one person. And everyone accepts that. Why can't we also have, if you're going to have kids, you don't drink or do, do other drugs. That's just, if you, if, if you don't want to fuck up your kids, then that's something that you have to accept. And if you if you don't want that, that's fine. You can have kids later. You can drink for another five years. Or you can drink for the rest of your life and never have kids. But I don't know how we think that in any healthy way, alcohol and having kids is a good combination. And there'll be people that hear this and say, oh, that's just because you drink too much. Yeah. I well, know. I just think of the people that we know that are social drinkers, but they can still get a DUI with kids in the car and that can cause havoc. They can still give this un realistic viewpoint of, oh, well, my dad wasn't an alcoholic, so therefore I can drink and I don't have the alcoholic gene or whatever. Or that just that tension or the uncertainty that, oh, sometimes dad drinks and he's fun, or sometimes mom drinks and she's hilarious. But then what happens like the next day if there's hungover? Because that's, for me as a drinker, when I would drink, I would be hungover. So I was not a good mom those days. Yeah. You know, so like it it doesn't matter how much you drink. There's yeah. an impact. Yeah, I just think the whole country has cognitive dissonance. We we think that consuming a toxin that you know, by definition, by biology and science tells you that a buzz, that good feeling, the reason you drink for that social lubricant or stress relief or whatever it is, the reason we do that is making your brain not function at optimal capacity, we think that is a good thing to combine with parenthood. And now I feel guilty for being luxury these last two minutes. I don't mean to be that. I, or good for relationships. I, just, I wish I had had this information. God, I wish I had had this information. I wish I it just had been that... a, an option to not not drink when I became a parent. But that was not an option that was even on the table for me. I just hope that these last two episodes can maybe make an impact with even adults that were children of alcoholics like get and seek help and they can understand. And you can see why it is a family disease and you won't be so and the alcoholic won't be so oblivious to the impact. Even if even if the couple is divorced. Like, I had to deal with that. Like, worry of, like, oh, what's my dad going to be like this weekend when he picks us up? Yeah. That was probably one of the reasons I used to say, I hate weekends because my weekend, every other weekend, was anxiety-filled. From the time I got home from school on Friday night until my dad got off work and picked us up at 5.30 to know how he was going to be, be. If he picked us up late, I knew we were staying home and it was an argument. So that's a, that is a great point. That is a great way to end this conversation. I have thought for years now in this sobriety and in this work that we do that you and I were going to be the break of the generational trauma for our family. You experienced trauma and we were going to make it so that it stops here with us. And now after this conversation with Catherine, I see that we're too late for that. It can't stop here with us. I already ruined that. 
So now our only hope is that it stops with our children and if they decide to have kids, that that's where the break is. And so the idea of ending generational trauma has to go another generation before it can be a solution, potentially. Thanks for talking about this with me. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.